And so these authorization acts act as like a change log. They provide updates to previously made title codes. So if you're reading over the thing that was proposed in Congress, it's going to say like Section 20502, Amendment 3, we're going to change and to or. And it's not going to seem like much, but then you read, we're going to develop SLS and Orion, and that some change might be to SLS or Orion. That's RIT Specs alum Anthony Hennig during a conversation from all the way back on March 12th. Where do politics and the space industry collide? How does the government influence the future of space exploration? This week on SpecsCast. Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host for the next hour alongside TJ. Hello. Drew. Hello. And our good friend, Anthony Hennig. Hi, everybody. If you're just finding out about this podcast, first of all, thanks for listening. We're a group of students belonging to a student faculty research group called RIT Space Exploration at the Rochester Institute of Technology. On this podcast, we talk space with everyone from amateurs to astronauts. You can learn more about Specs and SpecsCast at our website, specs.rit.edu. Today we'll have a discussion about news and current events in the space industry. Please let us know what topics you would like us to cover in the future by sending us a tweet at RITSpecs or an email at specscast at gmail.com. Feedback is awesome and helps us make a better show for all of you. All right, Anthony, um, it's good to talk to you again. Uh, we saw you... Right when we first started out, we talked about your thesis about asteroid mining. Um, can you introduce yourself and tell us what you're doing uh, with your time nowadays? Yeah, so hi everyone. My name is Anthony Hennig. I'm uh, currently a PhD student down at George Washington University. I'm studying systems engineering, but I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of the space program. I'm coming off of a couple of years of working at NASA Langley just as an intern on mission or human exploration mission architectural concepts with the space mission analysis branch in SACD, and even doing a little bit of policy analysis for them. Uh, just graduated with my SciTech and public policy degree this past May from Rochester Institute of Technology. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. I'm trying to get involved with the space community right now. I'm trying to understand all the stuff that's going on. And uh, I'm kind of excited to talk about what all is going on right now. There might be some changes. Who knows? Keep on listening, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So yeah, the, the first uh, big, huge, drama-filled, exciting piece of news uh, we should talk about is Blue Origin's New Glenn Orbital Class Rocket. So we've heard, I don't know, since last May, I think, uh, we first heard about the New Glenn Rocket, but now we finally get some specifics, some details about uh, Blue Origin's technology and what they plan to use it for, right, TJ? Yes. So uh, in the past week, Jeff Bezos was at the Satellite 2017 conference, and they had a talk uh, that was introducing New Glenn, uh, kind of this for the second time. So uh, last year, uh, at the end of a New Shepard, uh, successful New Shepard landings and reflights, uh, Blue Origin announced their New Glenn architecture, which is uh, two vehicles. Uh, one is a reusable first stage and second stage powered by BE4 Methflux engines. And then the second version of the vehicle is a three stage rocket with 
Methalox first and second stages, and then a new Shepard-esque uh, Hydrolox third stage. So we got some very initial, uh, not even renders, uh, just concept drawings of the rocket. Uh, they announced uh, that they were opening a factory in Florida, uh, that they announced their new BE-4 engine and all these things. Uh, and so this was kind of a re-introduction uh, of that architecture. So there's a really uh, interesting uh, render video uh, titled Introducing New Glenn, which shows the launch uh, of a New Glenn rocket, putting a payload into orbit, and how the rocket actually uh, returns to land and successfully is recovered. Uh, and so there's a lot of interesting new information. Uh, the design has slightly changed from when it was first unveiled. Uh, and there's interesting uh, similarities and differences to SpaceX, which has already successfully recovered orbital class boosters. So it, it is a rocket that goes up and vertically lands um, downrange. So uh, just listing off some of the key elements, similarities and differences from things we've seen from SpaceX. It has landing legs. They're more similar to New Shepard, but there are six of them as opposed to SpaceX's four, which gives it uh, redundancy if one landing leg fails. It's not a complete loss. They can still um, recover the rocket. Another is it's got seven BE-4 engines, uh, which are methylox engines, uh, on its first stage that's being recovered. And it has well, basically wings. Like they're, <laughs> they're, they look like small fins in, with respect to the rest of the rocket, but then you realize that the rocket itself has seven meter wide tanks, which means these fins are going to be like, I don't know, huge. <laughs> um, so as opposed, SpaceX uses grid fins to stabilize the rocket when it comes back, um, but New Glenn's going to use these fins as their aerodynamic stabilization. It, it's super fascinating when you look at the structure and the design of New Glenn and everything. Because if you guys remember the uh, the 321 pen issue with SpaceX had a couple years ago, so March 25th, Jeff Bezos gets a pen. It's the total number is 8678321, and it's a sea landing of space launch vehicles and associated systems and methods. And uh, this pen is super fascinating because what it argues for is for the combination use of both air brakes and aerodynamic stabilizing fins as we can see in the sighted patterns, to land on a platform at sea. Now, you know, New, she uh, New Shepard, right? The tiny little rocket. We have, yeah, it consistently lands on land and everything. You know, there's going to be benefit to doing that. It's also been done within the field. But specifically, they're kind of staying within the bounds of their pen, probably for that additional protection, or that they see some kind of benefit out of it. Specifically, that element of landing at sea and everything. It makes it different than previous patents. I mean, if you look at, like, the cited patent documents, there was a huge pushback in the 70s about reusable rockets, and then more recently, um, a huge push about reusable rockets. When you look at their citation numbers and everything, so maybe it's an engineering choice, maybe it's something to kind of keep in line with that original patent, but... Yeah, it, it's it's a different architecture to accomplish a similar thing. Uh, regarding that patent, uh, that was filed um, before either SpaceX or Blue Origin had um, actively pursued uh, reuse. Mm -hmm. And so, as we all know, SpaceX uh, was actively doing soft landings in the ocean and then had success landing boosters at barges at sea. Uh, and so Blue Origin had applied for this uh, sea landing barge patent 
uh, and Blue Origin tried to file patent infringement <laughs> against SpaceX. And so uh, they actually got that patent dismissed, uh, not only because Blue Origin at the time wasn't able to you know, produce that patent, which is not always critical for getting a patent uh, approved, but there's also significant prior art of rocket landings on platforms in the ocean, especially in the 60s and 70s, where people were thinking forwards to the future of potential reusable rockets. And so that was a, you know, a small legal hurdle for SpaceX at the time, uh, but that has since been uh, dismissed by the courts. Uh, but it is interesting that in their kind of vision video, they're definitely going with not just barge landings, they're landing out on sea on an actual uh, moving ship, uh, which is slightly different than what SpaceX has attempted previously. Yeah, so the ship, the benefits to the, the ship, um, at least one argument is that if you have a vessel moving through the water, it is more stable, uh, even in rough seas, as opposed to what SpaceX does, which has the autonomous spaceport drone ship <laughs> hold a specific coordinate. Um, so in rough seas, its uh, surface might be bumping around and, and changing with the waves, but the new Glenn recovery ship would not have that stabilization issue, but would be a moving target that the rocket um, would have to keep up with. And uh, so that'll be really cool. As similar as they seem on the surface, there's a lot of new technology still waiting to, to come out of this. Well, there's also another really big, interesting difference, and it has to do with the, the relative complexity of both systems. So I'm speaking now as a new systems engineering student, and so if we were to look at the two com comparable vehicles, the Falcon Heavy, the SLS, and the new Glenn and everything, Falcon Heavy requires the individual bonding and reclamation of three separate craft to perform the same duty over again. Each of those three separate craft having nine engines on them, which is kind of interesting. You see some kind of risk proposition trade-off with the new Glenn vehicle and everything, where this is now one craft with seven engines that you have to reclaim and reland. And so there's, there's an interesting, we're seeing two different risk mitigation strategies. One of them is we're going to make a ton of boosts with a ton of engines. If anything goes wrong, we can just slap on a new one. There's going to be more upfront costs to so re-tape them together and everything and recouple them back together. But it looks like Bezos is going the opposite direction, saying, look, it's better just to refurbish one vehicle with seven engines than try to refurbish 27 engines and three vehicles. So we're seeing two different methods. It's going to be interesting to see which one kind of rins out over time. So we don't know. No one's, no one's done it. <laughs> uh, SpaceX has recovered the Falcon 9 uh, single-core booster, uh, but the reason uh, we're comparing that to Falcon Heavy is that the Falcon 9's max low-Earth orbit payload is around 22,000 kilograms, uh, but the new Glenn in the two-stage variant is roughly 35,000 kilograms. Uh, so that puts it more into the very heavy lift category that Falcon Heavy and SLS exist in mm -hmm. on the low end, uh, because it is um, mu much larger than just a normal Falcon 9. Uh, so those, you know, architectures don't directly scale in between. Yep. I'd like to talk about one thing uh, regarding the market. So the very heavy lift category is someplace where there's not that many vehicles right now. Um, you know, SLS, Falcon Heavy, New Glenn, they, they're all not online yet. Um, but 
there's also not that many payloads that would require a have very heavy lift rocket, right? So the ones that do require it might be willing to pay a lot, but if there's not that many of them, you know, is this a build it and they will come approach or are there more very heavy payloads on the way? So there's a few different factors uh, at play here. I'm sure Anthony can chime in after this. Uh, one is that uh, over the past 15, 20 years, there has been a general trend of increasing satellite size. So those very common geostationary satellites and even smaller communication satellites uh, have been increasing in size and lifespan year over year, generally trending upwards. And so as we're seeing with the upcoming uh, SpaceX launch uh, in a few days, they're flying in expendable mode because these geostationary satellite they're launching is at the kind of cap uh, of their launch capability. Uh, and so with more capable rockets, those payloads would allow to be uh, grow in mass even further. But on another uh, new trend that we have now is that with the advent of reusable rockets, there is a considerable cost benefit to if you can launch a payload that is not taking up 100% of the max payload of a rocket, then you can have it reland and be able to reuse. So you can reuse hardware, reduce costs, uh, instead of flying expendable rockets at the edge of their envelope. So uh, one of the plans SpaceX has is for satellites, geostationary satellites that are too big for a reusable Falcon 9, they would fly in Falcon Heavy uh, with the anticipation that the cost of landing and refurbishing three cores uh, is cheaper than launching a brand new expendable Falcon 9. Um, now on the uh, topic of clients, paying clients for these new rockets, Falcon Heavy has an existing manifest uh, that they have yet to start going through. And New Glenn actually has two customers signed on. Utelsat, which is an established satellite maker uh, in the industry, has signed on for a launch um, at the earliest 2020 when New Glenn is going to become operational um, with a scheduled window from 2020 to 2022. So still far out, uh, but, you know, closer than uh, it may seem. And also uh, OneWeb has also signed up to launch satellites. I don't know. From from my perspective, I'm seeing a lot of conflicting opinions, right? So we do have growing spacecraft size. We also see decreasing spacecraft size with the CubeSats, microsats, and everything like that. On top of it, we have ResolL, which when we look at the Authorization Act, is getting a lot of more support, which actually looks at spacecraft refurbishment in situ in orbit. So we have this major change coming up. And we, we need to understand the history when we talk about the development of these super heavy lift vehicles. Back in 2006, we had the Exploration Systems Architectural Study, and they looked at different potential launch configurations, and they said, okay, for given architecture and everything, for example, setting up a lunar outpost um, that over the course of 10-some launches can be somewhat independent, somewhat sustaining, um, they tried out a lot of different things. You know, the runner-up was our Ares 1, Ares 5 combination, where we have a small commercial vehicle or a small crew vehicle that can get people to the ISS and back, or we can throw it on top of another spacecraft and use that as a crew transfer vehicle. And then we have the Ares 5, which can carry really, really, really heavy things, and we can take three of them and put together a spaceship and go from there. 
Now, it's really fascinating when you review ESAS today, we see the SLS come into being. SLS was like the second option. It said you can either build these two rockets, one of them's super cheap, um, the other one is kind of more expensive, but it'll get you a lot of stuff into orbit. That's a good solution. The next best solution is this SLS-style rocket, where it's strap-on gigantic boosters, reuse um, shuttle engines, and make a rocket based on that architectural. We have... It's getting kind of interesting. A lot of people are betting different things on how everything's going to play out. Or they're, they're betting, essentially, their rockets on how everything's going to play out. Um, or at least trying to have a solution depending on how it does play out. If we go for human architecture and exploration, there is definitely a benefit to larger payloads. Have, if you've ever done the mass fraction calculations, right? It's super easy when you do it the first pass. But then you realize that in order to hold your propellant, you need a tank. So the tank increases the mass of the vehicle, which decreases the mass fraction, so that you have to increase the amount of fuel to get you back at the right mass fraction, and you end up with an iterative loop that becomes stable at a point, hopefully. But there's, there's definitely a benefit to having larger tanks, but there's also a tremendous cost. So some of these are bet. I'm, I'm guessing a lot of these heavy lift launch vehicles are betting that there's going to be a need for heavy tanks of stuff. Um, you know, or gigantic satellites. Haven't seen it yet. You know, that's going to be something interesting that will develop hopefully for the next over the next few years. Like I wish. Anthony, you brought up the point that there's a decrease in size of satellites as well with CubeSats and microsats. And a huge portion of the launch market is these smaller, cheaper satellites. But you also brought up that there might be more need for heavier launch vehicles, and that's that may be what these companies are hedging their bets on. And I think that there might be a need for deep space or, you know, past the moon exploration in the near future. So I think that would be something exciting to see a use for these vehicles. Yeah, I mean, that's what they're betting on. You know, someone wants, you know, to hit an Amazon dash button on the moon, and then a couple of days later you just see a vehicle come by and everything with, like, tortilla chips or something. I, I, I think that's what a lot of these guys are hedging their bets on. I mean, there was a huge discussion last May, uh, if I remember correctly, about deep space habitats. And so this is where we saw Lockheed Martin talk about the Martian base camp, but we saw Orbital ATK and Boeing talk about cislunar base camps and space stations around the moon. Um, so... Yeah. Let's see what we choose to do. <laughs> yeah, I think there's an interesting connection. You talked about, uh, you know, nanosats and how they're bundled together on other rockets uh, to reduce that per customer cost. And when we uh, were covering small sat conference last year, Gwen Shaw was talking about SpaceX used to serve that small sat market with Falcon 1 and has moved out to Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy, but they still do ride shares. And they think ride shares are how they can serve small sats. Uh, but as we, we talked about in an episode uh, that will be out before this, uh, with Boeing and OneWeb and SpaceX all proposing multi-thousand satellite constellations uh, that may or may not get built, I think it's interesting to if you look at super heavy lift vehicles, they might also do ride shares or multi-satellite uh, dispensers, but on a order of magnitude larger. We're talking about 100 plus kilograms per satellite mm. instead of one kilogram CubeSats. Mm. Um, I, one last thing coming from the 
satellite show 2017, um, I saw news about Axiom Space. Axiom Space wants to put a private module onto the space station and eventually grow that into their own private space station um, for science and tourism. And their timeline says, you know, first module on the ISS in 2020 with eventually their own commercial space station in 20, late 2020s, like 2028 or so. Um, so, yeah, I guess the payloads would, would grow in size as well as, um, as the capacity increases. I hope that small sats still, I, I hope that the, um, the trend isn't a relaxation of the limits. Like in satellites, they have to keep the size, the mass down, um, to fit on these vehicles. And, you know, because the cost comes per kilogram, basically with the launch. If you have a higher capability rocket, do you think the cost per kilogram will go down and then those limits will be sort of relaxed on pushing satellite companies um, to squeeze every ounce out of every kilogram? Well, sorry, that's a terrible phrase. Uh, to squeeze literally every ounce out of their hardware. Okay. Um, turned one bad pun into another. But do you think that's what we'll see is where, where a satellite can afford a few extra kilograms here here or there because we have capable lifters? Those capable lifters come with huge price tags. I mean, you have to realize that a lot of organizations that are taking advantage of the new launch vehicle market are private companies, right? I mean, even SpaceX is a private company, and so is ULA and everything. And you can talk about how they're interconnected with other organizations and governments, but... I mean, there there still is a a price on mass, and I think Atlas V is a great example of this. So if you're not familiar with Atlas V architecture and everything, you can strap on however many boosters you want and everything. You can update or down uh, downdate downgrade your kind of launch vehicle and everything to meet your specific needs and to meet your costs and budget. And the fact that we've been seeing Atlas V being used for everything recently, you know, kind of talks to the fact that people still want to save money. Because because not only do I have the increased mass of, or the increased cost of whatever I've added for that extra couple kilograms, now I have the increased price tag of my launch vehicle, and then I might need to strap on another booster or something, or... I, you, I'm definitely going to predict you're going to see growth into the boundaries and everything. Like, they're going to grow as big as their pot allows. But other than that, it isn't going to be like, oh, well, why not throw that extra satellite on there? You know, it's still... You still got to plan ahead. And, and satellites, despite everything we want, need to be a highly integrated structure. Right? Between the mass considerations, between the communications of the elements and the high-risk proposition... Integration works really well for satellites, and that requires pretty narrow system definition boundaries. Blue Origin's hardware has been in the news for a different reason. For the ULA Vulcan engine, Vulcan is considering Blue Origin's BE-4 Methylox engine or Aerojet Rocketdyne's Carolox AR-1. Um, they've kind of had parallel design structures for their new Vulcan rocket. Um, and we've seen some interesting developments regarding which ones they down select to. Uh, I guess the primary contender has been Blue Origin's BE-4 for a long time. 
But now we've seen some rumblings from Congress uh, uh, influencing this down selection. Well, the I just want to kind of do some quotes from this article. Uh, Ars Tanica, Eric Berger, we talked about a few episodes ago, uh, has an article, Blue Origins, New Engine Isn't Good Enough for Some Congressmen. Uh, and as Phil mentioned, uh, Vulcan is the successor to Atlas V that kind of combines Delta, most of the Delta family and most of the Atlas V family into a new uh, kind of architecture. Uh, and so they have a kind of primary engine, which is the BE-4 with a Methalox tanks and Methalox uh, fuel cycle. And then they have a backup engine, the AR-1. And during their development, depending on the progress of both Blue Origin and Aerojet Rocketdyne, whichever is farther along, whichever has the highest probability of success is going to be down-selected to, a lot like how we saw in Commercial Crew and in Commercial Cargo, where uh, Dream Chaser unfortunately lost out on uh, the first round of Commercial Cargo. They, I, did they lose out on Commercial Cargo or Commercial Crew? Lost out on Commercial Crew, crew and then they got the contract for Commercial Cargo 2. Yep, and that's yeah. that's where the cool new black one comes from. It's a cool-looking plane. Sorry. Anyways. <laughs> yes, and so um, as part of the New Glenn announcement, Blue Origin showed that they had completed several uh, subscale prototypes with BE-4 and had finished the first full-scale prototype of the BE-4, uh, kind of showing that development has been going along uh, at a good clip. Uh, as far as we know, they're ahead of SpaceX uh, in the Methalox engine development timelines, although Raptor and BE-4 are very different engines. Uh, now, the key... Uh, crux of this article is that uh, two U.S. representatives, Mike Rogers of Alabama and Mac Thornberry of Texas, as long as as well as uh, U.S. Senator Richard Shelby of Alabama, are requesting uh, t- through Congress to the U.S. Air Force that because ULA is one of the launch riders for national security payloads, that the Air Force should have a, a deeper involvement in the design of Vulcan and that they should have a direct say uh, in the down select of an engine. The quote from this article says, quote, full access, oversight of, and approval rights over decision making uh, in the choice of contractors of the engines for Vulcan. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And therefore, uh, these senators acting as part of Congress would also have a decision uh, making say in ULA's uh, down select process. Uh, and so this is really interesting because from the news and milestones that we've seen, BE-4 is coming along very nicely. Uh, it also has some advantages in price in that because it's flying on Vulcan and New Glenn, it'll have a higher production rate and therefore assumedly a lower cost in, in some respects. Uh, and so from an outsider's pers- uh, observer's perspective, it seems to be the kind of shoe-in choice for Vulcan. Uh, but this... Um, the crux of this is that those senators uh, represent the state which Aerojet Rocketdyne has their AR-1 factory in. Uh, so this would be a boon to them to have a new engine development program in their state. Yeah, Anthony, I, I kind of wanted your comment on this um, in terms of, like, how does government influence these private companies and, and competition um, for these contracts? Is it like, can you can you comment on that a little bit? Because it's totally foreign to me, and it's super complex. I mean, I mean, it varies. It, it comes to the fact that 
a lot of these organizations have not only, a lot of these government organizations have invested in vehicle development, or they've invested resources into vehicle development, or they're going to be a primary consumer of these vehicles. Um, I'm not completely familiar with this. I would love to read into it a little bit more. Um, but it's it's really interesting because you have to think about what what metrics do senators have or what metrics do legislators have when they look at their, their organizations and their states and everything to say that I'm providing some kind of benefit or the actions that I undertake don't directly harm my constituents. And so maybe this is an adaptation of that. I'm uh, not entirely sure, but you do get to the point where some of this organizational development and some of this research and development funding is partially government-sponsored. I mean, SpaceX was bailed out very early through a large amount of income through NASA because they thought that there was a benefit to creating these new opportunities and new jobs. They have a mandate to work with small businesses and everything. And so maybe this is coming out of this development. You have to realize that um, each state wants to have opportunities, I'm thinking. You know, I'll need to read up on a little bit more. But it, it's, a, it's an interesting interaction where it's like, while this market is still very small and federal governments are still the, the highest consumer, you know, it, it kind of raises a question about how much should your customer have in the say of your development of a product. And it gets really, really interesting when you have these kind of organizations that are heavily sponsored by governments, but they seek to do research and development on their own. And so you have to ask yourself, why are both sides acting in this manner? And, you know, how, how do their value propositions change and how do they differ from each other? So I think uh, an interesting historical perspective is on the EELV program, uh, Evolve Ex Expendable Launch Vehicle Program, uh, that became Atlas V and Delta IV, where the Air Force and the Department of Defense were basically working hand-in-hand hand developing the requirements with Boeing and Lockheed at the time to produce these vehicles that serve the needs of the government. Um, now, Anthony's right about the early days of SpaceX where NASA funds and NASA development programs and then also service contracts allowed SpaceX to develop newer versions of Merlin, develop Falcon 9, develop Dragon. What's interesting about uh, Blue Origin is that they have a much larger uh, investment chest through Bezos than with Elon Musk. And with New Glenn, which we're kind of getting a more concrete timeline on, is looking to be a completely privately funded uh, vehicle. Uh, there's been no government funds towards the BE-4 engine as of yet. Uh, even SpaceX has a small Air Force research contract to work on a version of Raptor. Uh, so they're still getting funds from the government for their engine development. And so... It's an interesting uh, question to, to see, uh, would BE-4 get any government uh, assistance or funding for its development uh, if Blue Origin was going to go and produce New Glenn in its entirety? Obviously, because that's a central element to that rocket. Um, while AR-1 uh, and ULA might receive government funding for their development. Yeah, it's just kind of cool to, to see the interaction between government and, and space. Um... So let's move on to the, the last topic we had on the agenda, the NASA Transition uh, Authorization Act of 2016. So this is the 
the act that basically official statement from the government um, saying what NASA's plans are for the year and, and moving ahead and their positions on various topics. So, Anthony, have you read this? Yeah, so so let me kick it off where it's like all views and opinions. I'm going to do my best to just provide facts. That is my intent and my sole intent. It's not the views or opinions held by anybody that I work with or who I'm employed by, kind of stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's it's important to understand what this reauthorization bill is, and I think that's a good place to begin. Now, I'm guessing if you're listening to a podcast and everything about space, you probably have used a computer or you might have played some kind of video game at some point, and you're probably familiar with like the change log, or if I use the phrase change log or operating system. It might kind of give you an idea, but what this reauthorization bill does is it, it functions as an update to the operating system that is our federal government. When you look at what a reauthorization bill does, it lays out the title code. And the title code is the body of statutes that make up the whole operating principles of the government. So if you go to like title code 45, you'll find out stuff about patents, if I remember correctly. If you go to, uh, you know, all over the place. I'm going to just bring it up real quick. If you're looking for an interesting read, you can use the U.S. title system to uh, go through and see what everything what everything that the federal government does, right? And so you can actually trace back every federal agency or executive agency. You can even see some of the actions of the states. And from these statutes, they generate regulations, or so the organizations and agencies generate regulations and you have a government. That's kind of how it works. And so these authorization acts act as like a change log. They provide updates to previously made title codes. They amend the language. So if you're reading over the plain text of the thing that was proposed in Congress, it's going to say like section 20502, amendment 3, we're going to change and to or. And it's not going to seem like much, but then you read, we're going to develop uh, SLS and Orion. And that sudden change might be to SLS or Orion. So it changes it changes the whole organization. What we see with the 27 Authorization Act is that it isn't that much change from last time, but there's some interesting things that they call for. Um, to give you some background in history, every couple of years, every senator tries to put forth the NASA Authorization Act. They tend to come from the House or Senate. The Senate, it's usually with the House Committee on Science, if I remember correctly, and that has like Ted Cruz in it, or it comes from the House Subcommittee on Science and Technology. And that's um, where we see a wide variety of people. It's actually a pretty large group. Um, if you want to get interested and participate, they actually live stream pretty well, but they tend to announce the space ones only like a few days in advance before they actually stream it. And so there was an attempt in 2014, but that died in the Senate. Um, the most and most Two most notable ones are ones that I've written about, which is the 2010 Authorization Act and then the Space Act. And so if you want to figure out what NASA does, it's mostly in Title 42 under Public Health and Social Welfare. And you also see Title 51, that's came out of the 2010 Space Policy and a little bit of the Space Act uh, that was passed in 2015. And there's a few other little modules in Title 15 and Title 49 that define what NASA does. So yeah, it's it's pretty exciting to actually see something pass both the House and the Senate. So now it is waiting on the president's desk to sign, which is really exciting because it means that we we might have a bit of a course direction or course correction. It depends on what you think 
come and go. This stuff is proposed and then it has to be signed off on mm -hmm. by the House and the Senate and eventually the president. If there isn't agreement among those three bodies... It stays the way it was. So does that mean the authorizations or like the direction of NASA and things haven't changed for that long because we just haven't had enough support to nail down a specific change in direction? Well, presidents typically nailed down a national space policy. And we saw the most recent version of the national space policy come out in 2010 during President Obama's service and everything. And so each president tends to disclose elements of their space policy leading up. It didn't happen this time. Um, we did have Mr. Lightfoot, or I should say Director Lightfoot, put in place right now. And from his walk, or Administrator Lightfoot, and um, from his walk he's had some pretty well-known views about the space program, so that's, that kind of functioned in the same way, where he, he became the space policy and he's now put forth the Authorization Act, or he, or he didn't directly put it forward, but it was certainly drafted with him in mind and probably working with. So we haven't seen a formal space policy come out from the White House yet, which is kind of interesting. Um, those were outline most of what we'll see in the Authorization Act in very simple and clear terms and actionable terms. Um, but yeah, so we'll slowly see that probably progress. So right now I actually have the NASA Authorization Act for 2016 pulled up on my computer, which is pretty cool, and we can read the actual legal texts mm -hmm. um, just on the internet. Uh, yeah, this is but, the 2017 Authorization Act, right? 2017, yeah. sorry. Yep. So um, can you pick out some of the major things or most interesting bits of this, as you put it, an update to the direction of NASA? Can you elaborate on some major changes in direction or interesting language that we've seen? Yes. So one of the interesting things is the further use of the International Space Station, perhaps until 2028. Um, I'm pulling a lot of this from a great overview list from Marsha Smith at Space Policy Online. She's a great resource if you want to get involved. Um, and so one of the big, biggest things is looking at the International Space Station and continuing to use it through 2028. So we're stretching out that, that lifespan. It's interesting that you brought up this Axiom Space Group and everything, because it's like, huh, I wonder how they're going to interact or maybe interfere with operations on the ISS. Um, there's some interesting things about insurance changes. Um, the big thing that everyone jumped on was saying, you know, there's this 2043 amendment in there. And if, if I remember correctly, and I'm going to double check it, I'm looking at it right now, um, but it's a report. So the most 2033 report is actually asking the administrator shall contract, and this is the interesting part, an independent non-governmental systems engineering and technical assistance organization to study a MOS human spaceflight to be launched in 2033. So that, that's an interesting thing that's usually kind of done in-house and everything. So it isn't, we're going to land 2033. This is talking about a MOLS human spaceflight mission. So this could be flyby, this could be landing, this could be FOMOS and DEMIOS activity. This could just be a, a slingshot kind of in the sphere of influence and everything. Um, so that's really interesting to bring up and everything. And they're talking about a technology roadmap, a budget profile, and then a comparison of the budget profile between 2017 and other, uh, out and beyond. Um, and comparison to say, okay, how much are we going to have to change to get through? Um, some other really fascinating changes.
that um, it might be interesting to look at is looking at some of the budget shifts. So we're seeing more of a budget shift towards um, exploration and a little bit in the, less in the science mission directorate, aeros, aeros, um, aeronautics technology or aeronautics mission directorate. And yeah, that, those are the biggest things is that we're actually seeing a little bit of a budget increase in comparison to the previous years and a, a greater focus on human exploration. Does that, in, so. does that include aeronautics and astronautics? In the budget increase? Um, aeronautics is slightly decreased, I think. I'm going to double check that. So I have a question. Um, now, does this uh, authorization bill count as a budget uh, appropriations bill for NASA? Or is this really defining the goals that funds could be allocated towards? I do not know off the top of my head, but there is a section that does outline actual funding and we're looking at section 101, which is the fiscal year 2017 profile. If you look at title one of the bill from congress.gov slash bill, we're seeing 4.3 billion for exploration, 5 billion for uh, mission. Now, another interesting thing is that uh, kind of a more political uh, discussion is that we didn't, again, you mentioned we didn't have a strong idea of either candidate's space policy going to the election. Uh, that wasn't didn't seem to be a key platform for either either candidate. Uh, now with President Trump, uh, we talked about last episode that there's been you know a sudden uh, rush of uh, cis lunar announcements uh, with the SLS EM one study uh, with crew and the SpaceX lunar mission and cis lunar one thousand. So there seems to be a lot of talk in the industry about shifting focus to the moon in the near term, uh, and I think one of the interesting key points that you kind of already mentioned is that there doesn't seem to be a large shift in this, right? It doesn't, it doesn't seem to be a complete pivot from what we were doing last year or even several years ago towards the moon or towards something else. It seems to be a very slight shift of, you know, changing funding and doing some like those external reports and whatnot. I mean, yeah, I, I think maybe some of the activities trying to figure out what to do next. I don't know. I, yeah, I do not know. So you mentioned the the current kind of authorization bill that we've been working with has been the 2010 plan under President Obama. Do you foresee a similar two-year delay in, say, having a new authorization uh, plan? Or do you think it could happen next year or even in a few months when we hear more about the new NASA Advisory Council uh, and have an actual... Uh, new NASA administrator instead of an acting administrator? I, I do not know. Some of this language is very specific, and it's going to define what the national space policy ultimately becomes. Remember, this is changing the operating system, but you can still change the desktop, for example. You just have to have a desktop. Um, so we might see some adaptation of some of this. Remember, these aren't super specific rules. Um, you know, there are some general rules that you have to meet throughout the entire uh, federal code, but there might be some variation. There might be some adaptation. I'm not entirely sure just yet. And I'm, I'm still looking around to look at the 2016 agency fin um, finance report to figure out what, what this budget profile looks like in comparison to last year. I'm looking at this now and, and sorry, I just want to say that you weren't kidding about changing an and to an or. Yeah. Um, section 412, key objectives. 
One, in paragraph three, by striking semicolon and and inserting a semicolon. And a few more just grammatical things like that. And then at the end, it inserts a, a paragraph about human exploration of Mars and beyond through prioritization of technologies in accordance with the stepping stone approach. So it's like everything from actual language, changing it, making it more specific or more vague, to just changing the punctuation and grammar. Um, but that can influence the document as a whole. Yeah, one thing um, when I was reading over this earlier, uh, the asteroid redirect mission has some uh, additional uh, discussion in, inside the text talking about uh, budget uh, scoping and whether it's going to be over budget. Uh, the, well, the planned budget uh, will actually fit. And one of the interesting things is they highlight uh, solar electric propulsion. And there's a little bit of talk about uh, changing the primary goal of the mission uh, from you know, sending humans out to an asteroid and doing science with the asteroid to having the one of the key scientific goals being testing advanced solar electric propulsion for these deep space missions. Uh, and that's interesting because uh, looking uh, rather far back to uh, NASA's Journey to Mars uh, announcement plan, they definitely highlighted solar electric propulsion as a key technology in eventually having humans head out to Mars. Is solar electric propulsion solar sails? Is that the official title of solar sails? No. Or is, what is that? Solar electric propulsion is collecting solar energy and then usually ion engines or solar heating or something like that. Uh, oh. That's like the solar electric part is that conversion. Um, I wouldn't, I don't know if there's a more general casual term for solar sails, like radiation pressure or something else like that. Yeah. Usually, solar propulsion is, uh, we see it on geostationary communication satellites for station keeping. Um, and Russia has a kind of a, a rich history of solar electric propulsion um, at both small and large scales. Uh, and the U.S. is developing some in-house technology with, you know, ion engines and things like that as well. Well, I mean, we, we, have, we have electric propulsion, solar electric propulsion right now. Don, if I recall correct recall correctly, the vehicle that visited both VESA and is currently in series is solar electric propulsion. Um, and a lot of like Boeing satellites are solar electric propulsion too for that kind of station keeping. Yeah, and so. yeah, we definitely, it's definitely a really impactful technology. Uh, from a, a historical perspective, uh, there was actually a really interesting uh, kind of technology transfer uh, in the early 90s when the fall of the Soviet Union and we actually were able to bring in some more advanced designs from Russian satellites, which is actually really cool. And, you know, we might do a topic uh, in the future on Russian uh, solar electric propulsion systems. I just got a cool book from the NASA library, Challenge to Apollo, and it just catalogs like all of Russian space system development. It's so good. It's so it's it's huge, but it's such a great book. Anyways, I've got the comparisons for the uh, 2016 federal year budget um, and what it is right now. So if we want to roll through that, just to give some context. Yes. Every organization comes up with their own budget request and everything and tries to understand what to do. Now, when you see the actual budget documents, when they get authorized and approved and everything, you're actually going to be able to go on to like the NASA.gov website and break that down into like individual projects. Um, you won't get it by central, but you get an idea of what is happening where and why and who's working on it. 
So for the FY 2016, we're looking at 5,589 million. And then if we look at science over here, we're seeing 5,500 million. So about the same as 2016. Uh, when we look at aeronautics, FY 2016 was 640 million, identical for aeronautics. Um, space technology is interesting, so a lot of people are like, great, we have a, a science science mission director does satellites, aeronautics mission directorate does planes. Space technology mission directorate really focuses on demonstrators, low TRL stuff, advanced spacecraft technologies for life support, thermal management. I'm looking at the NASA.gov budget requests, which are freely available online. In FY 2016, it was 687 million. When we look here, 686 million. So just about identical again. Human exploration, that's a really exciting one because that talks about humans in space. So that's ISS, that's space transportation, that's space flight and support. That's exploration systems development. So that's where Orion and SLS lives. And then advanced exploration research and development that's another group. And so they had about um, 9 billion, but it looks like that's kind of being moved around into exploration and space technology. Well, with the education budget, is that um, at the kind of historical levels for education? Uh, because I know that during some of the government sequesters under Obama, uh, a lot of the like out kind of outreach stuff for NASA was impacted uh, directly, which falls, I would assume, would fall under NASA education. So NASA education, just looking at the budget fact sheet, talks about um, aerospace research and career development, space grant, EPSCO, which is competitive NASA-related research opportunities to institutions, um, STEM education and accountability, and a few other programs. So I'm not entirely sure off the top of my head, but that is the same as the 2016 fiscal year. One of the big ones that a lot of people don't think about is safety, security, and mission services. Um, this talks about like man center management and operations, like making sure buildings don't fall apart. Um, some people often factor in like launch pad maintenance. Sometimes that gets moved around um, between different organizations or shared. But it is, yeah, it's identical to what it was in 2016. I've just got one left. And so it looks like identical amounts for construction and restoration. And then Inspector General. It doesn't seem like much has changed in terms of the money. There's a little bit of a bump in human exploration, it looks like. Just the tiniest bump. But that doesn't necessarily mean there's not a change in goals. Like, these rumors about shifting focus from the moon to Mars, are they drawing from the same po uh, same buckets of money? Like, how much can change between administrations, uh, even if we don't see much changes here in this reauthorization bill? Is it still up in the air? Or are we seeing... You know, these rumors are influenced by the private sector type thing. The government's kind of going to remain on the same trajectory as far as we can tell. Yeah, I I do not know because a lot of the language is very similar about the stepping stone approach and everything. What's the stepping stone approach? That's the journey to Mars approach? Yeah, journey to Mars. Yeah, and to use cislunar transportation and cislunar exploration and then go to Mars at some point. And... You know, the fact that Section 414 in Title IV is almost identical, you know, in terms of human exploration stuff, I'm, I'm, I still need to read it. I still need to understand a little bit better. Um, 
but yeah, not seeing some tremendous changes. We'll eventually get to we'll go to the moon at some point, and then we'll go on to Mars, maybe. I'm not entirely sure. Still need to read. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty long, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I've got other stuff that I gotta read. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> gotta be a student. It's interesting. I mean, there's something worth talking about, in fact, that it's like the Force Authorization Act to get approved. In terms of its uniqueness, I'm not entirely sure just yet. I still need to read. But one of the interesting things that did crop up is the Treat Astronauts Act, which is kind of nice. That came out of a really interesting um, presentation last summer about ensuring astronaut health over time. This was something that we saw that was really, it actually came up in front of a congressional um, hearing and everything, and now we're actually seeing it getting added. And and you can also see it if you want to get interested in the, um, in the actual bill and everything. They're saying, oh, in chapter 3 of chapter 201 of Title 51, United States Code, we're going to change section 305 and add this new section. And it adds all this stuff. That's why the language of this specific section looks different than the language that you see in the rest of the document. Now, uh, looking at, like, we're, you know, in the beginnings of a new administration, uh, how likely is it, do you think, to have a kind of dramatic shift like we saw in 2010, where the Constellation program was uh, kind of canceled and rebuilt into SLS and a journey to Mars? Do you, do you see uh, a new rocket coming, or do you think SLS and Orion are going to be kind of mainstays in whatever comes after? I do not know. What I would advise people to do is look at the Exploration System Architectural Study, and they actually lay out a lot of different, radically different system architecturals to kind of explain how we could go to Mars and the Moon and everything. And it's a really, really cool read. It's freely available online. And, I mean, if you're looking for something to build in Cobalt Space Program, <laughs> this is something to, like, go through. What's it called again? Uh, the Exploration Systems Architectural Study. And it's it's a fabulous systems engineering document and policy document that talks about potential costs and potential risks and risk mitigation techniques and how to look at different rockets and compare them and actually measure their capabilities. There's a lot of fascinating things in that document. I don't know. I have no idea about what's next. How likely do you think it is for commercial launch services to be kind of included in a, a next uh, interpretation of kind of a NASA plan? Because I'm looking at the Exploration System Architecture Study, and that is from November 2005, at least this version. And there's obviously been an increase in technology development over the past 12 years. And we now have successful lower cost commercial providers and new uh, providers entering the market within the next five years. Do you, uh, ex and obviously NASA's already benefiting from that in some extent. If you read the architectural study, they aren't talking about companies, they're talking about what rockets could be built. Right? So if you scroll through the document, they're not talking so much about who's building them, but what kind of features are you looking for? And you can see the beginnings of Orion here, where they say, if we want to do this kind of activity, we need to have a, a crew vehicle that can handle these kind of constraints. Um, one of the really cool things is, is if you scroll through the document, they talk about 
we want a common bus for the crew vehicle and the, the hardware and everything so that we can put a crew vehicle on it or we can put an unpressurized cargo or pressurized cargo onto it. And so Exploration Systems Architectural Study is really fascinating because it talks about what the product could be, but it doesn't talk about who could provide the product. Um, there is some... There is some discussion. There's something. It's something I'm interested in, kind of looking at right now. About by defining the product in this way, do you limit who can solve it? I have no idea how to answer that just yet. That's where I'm studying it. But like ESAS is, you can see a lot of the directions we're going right now in ESAS from 2006. It forecasts a lot of the kind of technology development we're seeing right now. So. And you can see SLS, and you can see uh, uh, Aries 1 and 5 right next to each other, which is on the same graph comparing them. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great read if you're interested in kind of how things got to where they are right now. ESAS came out in 2006, right after the vision for space exploration about how could we do moon malls and beyond. That was the old phrase for it. Um, if you ever want to talk about designing a mission to space, this is a great document to show you how you could do it and how you need to lay out ground rules and assumptions. Um, really cool pictures of spacecraft, too. Just awesome pictures. But, like, you know, page 36 of the executive summary talks about the evolution of the crew capsule. And, you know, you can look at cycle 1 and see Orion out of it, or you can look at cycle 3 or cycle 2 and see Dragon. And the same kind of vehicle shapes and, and setup and configurations I'll see in there, too. If you go on down to page uh, 41 of the executive summary, you can see where how they kind of tried out different things and looked at costs and flight ratios and compared them across each other and how they chose it. If you go to page 44 of the executive summary, here it is. You have a one and a half launch solution, a two launch, and a three plus launch solution about how you could build a MALS vehicle. Right, and you see this five-segment RSB in line with an SME SSME core, and it says, "Oh, that's kind of interesting. It's a five-segment solid rocket booster, and it has four shuttle engines on it." And this is page forty-four, and you you can say, "Wait, that's SLS. It's a five-segment rocket booster with a full space shuttle main engine on it." And you can see of all the other solutions, that one was like a pretty high runner-up. Um. And it's really fascinating to go through it. It's like, if you go through it, where was it? You can see the human-rated Atlas V new launch vehicle. Hey, that looks a lot like Dragon, <laughs> right? And so you can see a lot of these forms that weren't even predicted yet. And you can kind of see them kind of crop out and it's like, oh, so this is how, how people just doing math dreamed what the new systems and architectures could be and so uh, what what spurred it's a really what spurred the creation of this mm -hmm. at that time and do you think there would be a new one in the near future like how often do these come out uh well this came out of like vision for space exploration and that's outlined in the front of the document it was essentially saying we have this vision for space exploration that we need to meet how are we going to do it right will we see a new one in the future i do not know I've got no idea whatsoever. Yeah, been, well, when was um, the one before this? Because this is—it's been ten years since this one. 
So they had the design reference missions before that, which was like, kind of if you ask mission architectures, like, what is, what is your dream? What would you want to do to get to Mars? And you got everyone to agree on the same thing. That became a design reference mission. And that saw about five major updates over time. And every time the technologies changed or the underlying costs change and everything, ESAS was different because they tried out a whole bunch of different strategies about how could we actually pull this off. You know, they even played with constraints like you can see on, let me check, um, by looking at like page 51 of the executive summary. They're like, how could we actually set this up so that we kind of keep the same costs and the same relative investment across the funding profile and everything with these sand charts? So, you know, it, it's, it was a question of about, like, how could we actually pull this off? We were asked to do this by the president to deliver a report. You know, this would kind of be a report, like you'd be asked by the president. So, who knows? Maybe we'll see this from the new Malls 2043 group that's been tasked by this new authorization bill? Um, I do not know. But this is kind of, when you hear about report, this is what it might look like. Where they talk about propulsion use and everything, and how you can hand off technologies, sensitivities. They even give you like rough ideas about what it should look like. And so, um, I don't know, it might be exciting. If you love really cool hand-drawn sketches, look at page 125 in part 4, Lunar Architectural. Where these guys are like, they got some artists to sketch out how you could pull this all off and design it. Um, they even do airlock trade studies saying, how should we get people in and out of airlocks? And some of this came into the uh, support discussion. And now we're using supports for everything. So it's a, it's a pretty cool innovative process. It kind of captures what the system architecture could be and then says, okay, we have some solutions. Let's see if we can get these to work. So. Oh man, and if you just go through this thing, um, page 158, Lunar Architectural Section 4, like seriously, if you play Cobal Space Program, this can give you some great ideas about like how to build spacecraft really, really well, because um, these are some of the best of the best. Like they have a, oh man, I forgot about this. They have like a base design on page 169 of Section 4. But I mean, this document is 800 pages long. This is the kind of planning you need to go to Mars with. This is a planning that they used to go to the moon with. Mars is a lot more difficult. So, same kind of difficulty, but a little bit different. Cool. Um, as far as yeah. being, uh, you know, someone, a civilian interested in space or the space industry and wanting to keep up with things, um, a lot of us follow news sites and you know, these big announcements like the ITS announcement, the, the new Glenn announcement, things like that. Um, but here we can kind of look at the, the skeleton uh, from which a lot of space development is based. Um, as far as the civilian goes, how, how would you advise someone to keep up with understanding all of this? Yeah. Space Policy Online is a really great kind of standard site. Marsha Smith listens on to all the public conversations and everything. Um, it's pretty fair and everything from what I can read. Um, sometimes she does talk about stuff, but she has some really great just overviews of things going on. 
Um, so I'd recommend checking out Space Policy Online, which is a great website. I'd recommend going to YouTube and actually subscribing to the HAL Science Technology uh, committees and everything. Because believe it or not, they're, they are A, really good at YouTube. B, they will upload and clip out like really interesting segments from the hearings and everything. So that's another great way to get involved. Then you can actually maybe call up your senators and representatives and you can say like, I really liked what you said. Um, or like, I didn't like what you say. So that's a really cool way that you can get involved and watch that directly. I don't think they allow anyone to comment on it for probably probably a good thing. Um, so those organizations are really great. GovTrack.us and Cornell Law Library are also some really just great resources. You can actually set updates and alerts. So like right now, I have alerts on Google Scholar about space policy from the Space Policy Journal, for example. I have alerts from YouTube giving me ideas when these events are going to happen. And um, you see a lot of these different groups, they make it really easy for you to kind of get involved or participate or at least watch from a distance. If someone wants to keep tabs on, on what you're doing or the kind of research and work that, that you're into, would you want to give people... Yo, follow me on LinkedIn! <laughs> no. <laughs> No, connect with me. Connect with me, yeah. Young professional. Yeah, no. Uh, actually, honestly, LinkedIn might be good. I need I need to get my social media game, like, started. I have no social media game right now. I mean, you do have an Instagram. So. Oh, God, I haven't used it for a while, though, I think. You used it eight days ago. It's just pictures of my hair. Yes. <laughs> Since this conversation on March 12th, the NASA Authorization Act of 2017 was signed by the President, who has also released a blueprint for NASA's budget for fiscal year 2018, and it's still making its way around Capitol Hill. SpacePolicyOnline.com is a great resource to stay up to date on all the space-related action happening in Washington, and we'll be keeping a close eye on future developments as well. Blue Origin's BE-4 engine is not out of the running yet for ULA's next-generation rocket, Vulcan. A few more tests of the Methalox engine are needed before they finally downselect to either BE-4 or Aerojet Rocketdyne's AR-1. I'm Phil, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on SpexCast. Share your thoughts and ideas with us on Twitter at RITSpecs, facebook.com slash RITSpecs, or send an email to specscast at gmail.com. You can learn more about RIT space exploration and specscast at specs.rit.edu. And if you're in the Rochester area, come visit our exhibits at Imagine RIT on May 6th. Our music is by Nelson Scott. Find more at his website, thenelsonscott.com.